everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and today we're going to be discussing Red Black in Neon Dynasty. Um, notes are available for anyone who wishes to follow along and is a limited guru or above patron on patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. So let's dive right in. Uh, Red Black has an average win rate of 57.2%, which doesn't really mean anything outside of context. It's a little bit behind Golgari, Demir, and Slesnia. So uh, green, black, blue, black, and green, white, and above everything else. So pretty good. I mean, you know, fourth out of 10 isn't amazing, but it's definitely closer to the top than to the bottom in terms of like absolute win rate rather than like number of decks above and below it. I think it's certainly like a pretty good place to be. The reason that I don't find myself there more often is that the cards that it's looking for are not cards that have a lot of overlap with the things that other decks are looking for. You end up kind of needing to commit and prioritize different things a little bit more emphatically. It's difficult to pivot in and out of this archetype to other archetypes. There aren't a lot of like adjacent strategies with smooth transitions. There are some things that you can do depending on how you start. You can exist in like a Grixis artifact kind of space. You could exist in like a flexible black ninjas kind of space. You could exist in like an open-ended red aggressive kind of space for a little while. You're going to need to commit sooner rather than later, and all of this is going to pair pretty poorly with green cards. And just like, if you are of a mind that is very much looking to get the most possible value out of like green sagas, for example, there's going to be very little overlap in the cards that you're looking for in this kind of deck versus that kind of deck. And so I think that like, Ending up in red-black frequently requires a bit of a different like mentality and overall prioritization of which kinds of options you're giving yourself early in the draft. That said, it is a strong deck. There are some cards, of course, that point very strongly in this direction, since there are cards that like are great here and it's a very different direction. Oni Cult Anvil being the loudest and most obvious, but Kumano Faces Kakazan is another card where like if I start with that, red-black aggro would be a pretty good place to end up, and uh, it's a very reasonable card to start with. Yeah, that's kind of neither here nor there once it gets to actually playing the archetype, but as far as just, like meta approach to like when you should be drafting it, it's relevant. I think that uh, how much you should be drafting it really comes down to whether you're more comfortable being aggressive or being controlling where there are implications about being controlling that they involve navigating sometimes more unusual mana bases and ways to like stay alive. And there are a lot of like implied challenges that you need to be adept at navigating if you're going to try to like this format more defensively. If you are more an aggressive, more of an aggressive player, I suspect that you're going to take uh, some of the like more aggressive cards that put you into this archetype a little bit more highly and end up here more. Another thing that could put you here more is valuing removal more highly because I think that this is a deck that wants that values removal and uses it pretty well, where some of the mid-range decks are not necessarily prioritizing removal as highly. I think kind of the 
biggest uh, principle about Red Black that sort of is like a shortcut to understanding all of the card rankings is that you want kind of the lowest curve you can realistically get. My first time drafting Red Black, when I wasn't very familiar with the stats and stuff, I wasn't really sure if that would be true or not. Like Iron Apprentice and Simeon Sling feel like pretty low impact cards. There's some, you know, circumstances where I could see those being good. In a lot of like limited formats in history, they would be too low impact. So like, is this a set where like I actually just want Iron Apprentice or not? Wasn't immediately clear to me before like playing with it and looking at stats and thinking about it. And I think the first time I drafted Red Black, I had four of them at the end because I just decided, yeah, I think this is what's going on. This is where I want to be. It's really nice to be able to like use it as a trick with Voltage Surge where you sacrifice your Iron Apprentice to like hit something with for four with Voltage Surge and then put a plus one plus one counter on something else to win a combat, for example. There was a time where I wasn't sure about that and just knowing, yeah, you want a low curve would tell me a lot about like what to be prioritizing and how to be drafting. And so to like, let me just read off the top commons by game and hand win rate. Okuba Reckoner Raid, Experimental Synthesizer, Virus Beetle, Kami's Flare, Clawing Torment, Iron Apprentice. That's the one mana Black Saga, the one mana red artifact that exiles the top card and you can play it and you can spend three mana to make a samurai and play another card. Virus Beetle is the one one that makes your opponent discard for two mana. Kami's Flare is the two mana deal three damage if you have a modified creature deal two to the player. Clawing Torment is the one mana aura that makes a creature unable to block and does damage to its controller. Iron Apprentice is the one mana one one that comes with a plus one plus one counter and when it dies, you can put its counters somewhere else. All of those cost one or two mana. So the top six commons for red black are all one and two drops. So uh, that's what I'm saying where that's like, you know, the kind of thing that's informing this statement that you really want the lowest possible curve. The seventh, by the way, is Searchlight Companion, which costs a whopping three mana. So still pretty lean. Searchlight Companion, incidentally, jumping ahead a little bit, Searchlight Companion and Iron Apprentice are kind of the two hidden gems of this archetype. The two cards that, the two commons that are winning, not being played all that often and winning a lot. And I think people could have access to a lot more than than, than they are playing. And people playing this archetype should probably be uh, taking them more often. So the reason that Red and Black wants to prioritize having a low curve, I think part of that is Experimental Synthesizer. Uh, Experimental Synthesizer is the second best common in Red and Black, something you really, really want to prioritize, something Red Black specifically wants to prioritize more than other archetypes. You have synergies with sacrificing it in addition to synergies with just like playing it and being an artifact. And you're well positioned to have a low curve. You have a lot of good cheap cards. Uh, Both your colors are offering good cheap cards that aren't necessarily available to other colors. Um, Okiba Reckoner Raid is huge here, but also being able to really take advantage of Clawing Torment is another good example. Prioritizing Experimental Synthesizer and trying to get as much value out of it as possible implies having the lowest curve you can not just because it's a card draw spell, but because, you know, if you play it on turn three, you presumably play it before you play a land. And so you can play any land, one drop or two drop 
that you reveal after playing it. But if you reveal a three, four, five, etc., you can't use it. And you know, the more expensive cards you have you have in your deck, the longer you want to wait to play the experimental synthesizer, the less value you're getting out of it, or you play it early and you're more likely to miss. Either way, that card's at its best, the like lower your average casting cost is in a very, very direct way. Aside from just synthesizer, there's also the fact of your positioning in the metagame. The thing that you are trying to do is punish other players for casting sagas, which can't block for a while, by pushing damage. And then when their first sagas start to transform into creatures, you can use removal spells. And then your opponent will be dead pretty soon because your creatures don't cost a lot of mana and do hit hard. It's very hard for you to win when your opponent starts flipping their more expensive sagas and when they you know, get their mana going and they're casting their expensive, powerful cards from lots of different colors. You're really trying to go under people. Sometimes that's get them low and then have some kind of uh, stable damage source and like burn them out over time or something. But you're you definitely are not the player with inevitability. You are the player who is you are the beatdown in the classic who is the beatdown structure. And it's easiest to beat down when you have a low curve. And easy and you you really want to make sure that you're playing creatures on the first and second turns to really get in before your opponent gets to start blocking with their sagas. Big picture, just prioritize low curve, cheap cards, ideally with high power to keep pushing damage as your opponent tries to start stabilizing. Uh, you would like artifact synergies, but they are not that important. The only common that really cares about like really high artifact density is Tawanshi Song Shaper, and that's not that high of a priority for you. Like it's a solid two drop, but it's not like it performs worse in red black overall than in Cry's Infiltrator. So if you just have other cheap creatures instead of that one, then you don't care that much about artifact count. There are some uncommons that are really good that make you care about artifact count, like Patchwork Automaton and, to some extent, Oni Cult Anvil. But the cards, specifically Scrapyard Steelbreaker, is a card that like tells you play a lot of artifacts, but Scrapyard Steelbreaker is too slow, too expensive, actually one of the biggest traps in the archetype, uh, one of the cards that performs least relative to how much it's played. I think that you are, as far as like how much you should be prioritizing artifacts, I think you often want to exist less in a space where you're like, how many artifacts can I get? And more in a space where you're like, it's natural for me to play a bunch of artifacts, but I also, all of the sagas that are available to me are good, except for the five mana red one. And that means that I can have a good density of artifacts and enchantments to be able to take advantage of Kami of Terrible Secrets, which is kind of like your curve topper. But it's, you shouldn't, like, Kami of Terrible Secrets isn't a huge priority, but you should position to play it. You should, like, it is not too expensive for your aggressive deck. It is very good if you're good at turning it on. I wouldn't go super far out of my way to like think of myself as a Kami of Terrible Secrets stack for the most part, but I do think that there is a way to draft red-black that's a little bit more about that. You still want to try to have a pretty low curve, 
But if you end up a little more removal heavy, then you can kind of like take advantage of the two for ones offered by Kami of Terrible Secrets, maybe play it with some ninjas, get a little bit more controlling. I think there's room for that like slightly bigger red black deck. But I think the slightly bigger red black deck is about playing a small game rather than playing a big game. And this is important. This the like slower red black deck is about having a lot of removal rather than about having a large board. And Scrapyard Steelbreaker would be a good finisher if a slower red-black were trying to play a big game. But because it's trying to play a small game and generally lead to fewer resources around, your Scrapyard Steelbreaker, the 4-mana uh, 3-4 that can sacrifice artifacts to uh, pump itself, or 3-3, three, three, whatever it is, your Scrapyard Steelbreaker isn't as good. And your Kami of Terrible Secrets is... A little bit better. Is it 3-4? Okay. Well, despite that, it still doesn't do well. I think the way that you end up slowing down with red-black is when you have too much removal to be fast rather than like too many expensive creatures to be fast is really what I'm saying. Like you still want to focus on cheap creatures, but if you end up with too much removal, I think that's okay. And if you have too much removal such that you can't end the game quickly, as long as you still have a good mix of artifacts and enchantments, I think that's kind of the sweet spot for Kami of Terrible Secrets. A few uncommons that surprise me with how well they perform. Gravelighter is not that surprising. You're trying to play a very low curve. You have a bunch of like fodder type creatures that you're happy to throw away. Uh, and then it's a flyer. Those are pretty hard to block in this format. So Gravelighter is you know, one of the like uncommons that's better than all the commons. That's a little bit surprising, not massively surprising. What was more surprising to me is high speed hover bike. Note that for this analysis, I was looking at game played win rate to try to account for the various ninjutsu type issues in this format. High speed hover bike performs better than every common and better than circuit mender and even better than twin shot sniper in red black which I definitely didn't see coming. And I don't know that I fully believe that it's better than those cards, but I'm certainly willing to take that as a strong indication that this is a card that I do want in my red black decks. Plays really well with ninjas, does the thing that I'm talking about where when you know your opponent plays sagas that can't block and then when they can, you tap their blocker, get in a bunch of damage, and then you have a like flying attacker. So high speed hover, hover bike, is the uh, two mana two two flying vehicle uh, with flash that taps into the enemy to the battlefield? Huge overperformer in red black. Oh, sorry, it's not better than every common. It's worse than Okiba Reckoner Raid. Reckoner Raid is the second best common or uncommon overall. It's Life of Mizawa, then Reckoner Raid, then uncommons like Komodo Faces Kakazan, Gravelighter, High Speed Hover Bike, Circuit Mender, Twin Shot Sniper, and Patchwork Automaton. Then efficient removal in the form of Kami's Flare and Clawing Torment which is the three damage red spell and the black aura and then experimental synthesizer. And then behind experimental synthesizer is Oni Cult Anvil, which is a card that I kind of thought would be even better than that red black. I don't know if Oni Cult Anvil is suffering a little bit from being a card that people take early and draft red black and maybe like force their way there when they shouldn't and end up with like a weaker deck overall or something. That might account for it having a slightly lower than one might expect game in hand win rate if it, or i mean game played win rate uh if it's as good as i think it is dragon spark reactor dragon spark reactor has horrible stats like 51 and change percent game in hand win rate or something like its stats are 
the stats of a card you should never touch. I've seen good players treat it as a like high pick powerful card, and I've lost to it a number of times. And I am not ready to dismiss Dragon's Bark Reactor based on the stats because I don't know if people are just like playing it in decks that shouldn't play it. I would be really interested if someone wants to dig deeper into 17 land stats and let me know. I would be really interested in uh, learning more about Dragon Spark Reactor's win rate as a function of number of artifacts that are played in a deck with it. My guess is that if you have like 18 plus uh, artifacts, uh, Dragon Spark Reactor is probably quite good. It's going to depend a little bit on what those 18 artifacts are, but 18 artifacts is also really, really high. My guess is that if you're playing it with like 10 artifacts, it's probably going to be a really bad card. And then I don't know where the turning point is, and I don't know how hard it turns. So I would say, personally, I still have a lot of question marks around Dragon Spark Reactor. So I leave processing that as an exercise to the listener with the note that it is currently played frequently enough that it loses a lot or wins not very much. So you should assume that people in general are overplaying it. And so if you're going to play it, you should be careful that you are at least in a better spot than the average person who plays it to put it in your deck. I mentioned that Scrapyard Steelbreaker doesn't do well. Undercity Scrounger does even worse. That's the card that I would consider the biggest trap in this archetype. Undercity Scrounger, I think, is a card that seems like it would be pretty good in a lot of draft formats that is just awful in this format. One four non-flying blocker is really, really, really bad in a world of sagas where like a one, there are so many creatures that are just not bricked long-term by a one four on the ground. And such a defensive creature is not what you're looking for. You want a low curve that's not going to take advantage of treasures in this archetype. Really just truly awful for this archetype. Do not play Scrapyard Scrounger in red black. Or Undercity Scrounger, rather, sorry. Scrapyard Steelbreaker and Undercity Scrounger should both usually stay out of your deck. I mentioned Searchlight Companion and Iron Apprentice are cards you should be playing more. And then I mentioned small games. It's just you have access to a decent amount of Menace, mostly from uh, Okibit Reckoner Raid, but not exclusively. Menace is harder to block when your opponent, when the game's smaller, and it's just easier for you to use a removal spell or whatever to push damage, the less large the board gets. And you're also about committing to the board earlier. So if you play a creature, your opponent plays nothing. And then maybe you play another creature and your opponent plays nothing. And then from then on, you trade plays with all of their plays. Those first two creatures that you got put you ahead and those just get in a whole bunch of damage while you're, while you're trading cards. But all of the those cards that you're trading keep the game little. So... You should generally very much be thinking about yourself as playing a small game, which to some extent implies that you want to trade off when you can, but pushing damage is more important than trading off just to trade off. So like if you have, you know, a tutu like Twashi Song Shaper and your opponent has their own, you know, random vanilla tutu of some sort, you don't necessarily want to attack just to keep the board small. You might want to like wait, play another thing, use a removal spell on their blocker, attack with both to try to push more damage. But 
you want to play cards that have the ability to trade immediately. In some ways, you can think of this as just you're trying to push damage and a removal spell, if you already have a creature in play, is somewhat analogous to a haste creature. Um, it's a little bit of a weird way of thinking about it, but it also kind of works that removal spells are just haste creatures. This is almost more apparent if you're playing an aggro deck with haste creatures. And like if you have if you've ever played just like a two mana two two and then a three mana three two haste and your opponent has a two two, you learn really quickly that your three mana three two haste was identical to a removal spell because your opponent just blocks it with their creature and your other creature gets through. And then the same works in reverse. A removal spell plays like the haste creature would as far as pushing damage goes. So they're just a good way to have a kind of immediate impact on the board that leads to damage being done to your opponent. Yeah, and then just to reiterate, the tools in red-black to win long games against other decks that start doing their long game plan, whether that's just flipping Sage Reaches Skyward and Tales of Sashiro and making huge creatures, or whether that's using... Uh, season of Renewal loops to get back everything you've killed. Whatever they're doing, uh, drawing cards with blue cards in any capacity, whatever they're doing long is almost certainly better than whatever you're doing long, unless whatever you're doing long is literally just going after their life total. It's something like Oni Cult Anvil or Dragon Spark Reactor, or even just like, oh, well, you haven't dealt with my flyer and it's going to attack you a few more times, then you're going to be dead. But the, the long game prospects for red black are worse than long game prospects for other decks, so you should try to play short games. Pretty straightforward archetype in terms of just like, yeah, you're the beatdown, removal is good, low curve. That's what I was able to find to dive deeper there. So let me open this up to questions from Twitch chat while I'm waiting for anyone to resubmit any questions they may have had that uh, I haven't addressed or anything that you haven't offered up yet. I'd like to thank the newest patrons of uh, patreon.com slash drafting archetypes, Raphael, Xavier, Fred, Hamani, Matthew, Ariel, Fernda, AK, and Andreas. Thank you so much, uh, all of you, for the support. Really uh, good week for getting new patrons. Makes me feel really good about uh, what I'm doing here. If anyone else is interested in checking out the benefits that we offer, I'm seeing why all the, why those people might have chosen to support the program, check out patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. Also, to reiterate... I do offer personalized coaching and I do offer a substantial discount to patrons of the podcast. Uh, the discount is such that if you um, subscribe to the Patreon for one month and book one coaching session, uh, regardless of which tier you choose, I believe you'll come out ahead. So if you're interested in all that, be sure to check out that website. All right, questions. First, do I always play 17 lands in draft? No. In this format in particular, I very frequently play 16. Part of that is that I play a lot of Commune with Spirits, and that makes me want to lower my curve. But also, I would say Red Black very frequently wants to lower, play fewer lands, because it's... Sorry, when I said lower my curve, I meant lower my land count with Commune with Spirits. Red Black has a low, has a low curve, and also a decent number of colorless cards, which decrease the intensity of your mana requirements 
let you get away with potentially keeping hands that only have one color of mana, which is a big problem with lowering your land counts too much. I believe that when I've played red-black, I have played 15 or 16 lands rather than 17 lands usually. So I both don't always play 17 in general, don't always play 17 in this format, and more specifically, don't always play 17 in this archetype, and suspect that 16 is more common. Oni Cult Anvil is significantly higher up the rankings in game and hand win rate than game played win rate. It can't be getting pumped by ninjutsu, so that suggests you're right that it's good, but putting people into red-black too often. I agree that that is what that suggests. It also suggests that there are deck building costs to maximizing Oni Cult's Anvil and that people are, are paying those deck building costs. So specifically, people are putting extra artifacts in their deck that aren't necessarily very strong. Uh, like, for example, Chain Flail Centipede. That makes their deck overall a little bit weaker, but makes them win when they draw Oni Cult Anvil because that card itself is so strong, especially if you've gone a little bit out of your way to support it. Can I cover again what my picks look like when not sure if this is the deck you're in yet? Uh, what are the flexible cards? Right, so the flexible cards, like a lot of the good uncommons in this deck are just generally good uncommons. So to go over the best commons and uncommons in this archetype, uh, in order of gameplay to win rate, we're looking at Life of Toshiro Mizawa. I'll take that first pick, you know, if there's not like a great rare, basically any time, doesn't put me in anywhere in particular. I could be this deck, I could be something else. Okiba Reckoner Rate, same situation. Uh, Kumano faces Kakazan, that's a little bit more narrow. It's going to put me into red aggressive decks, but still a reasonable place to start and doesn't lock you into black in any way. Gravelighter, another flexible, strong black card. It's going to be a little bit better in this kind of space than most places, but it's good all around. High-speed Hoverbike, aggressive card, good with ninjas, fairly flexible in that it's an artifact. A Circuit Mender, literally just good in every deck. Twin Shot Sniper, good in every red deck, potentially splashable. Patchwork, patchwork Automaton, good anytime you can play a lot of artifacts. Uh, Kami's Flare, generically good if you're playing red. Uh, Clawing Torment. Now we're getting a little bit more narrow. Clawing Torment is only good if you're an aggressive black deck. That's going to make me a little bit less inclined to take it early. Uh, that's going to be more once I know this is what I'm doing. So those are kind of like the high pick cards that uh, you can, you know, as long as you're seeing some combination of those, you can just take them and stay pretty flexible about where you're going with it. Wait a little while to commit. Maybe if you have, you know, two of those that are like in black and colorless, and then you see one that's red, you're like, oh, okay, I should be red, black here. I have like, you know, these just generally strong cards that'll work well in my aggressive deck, and I can pivot into like being black and red aggro. You know, Experimental Synthesizer, Virus Beetle, Tommy's Flare, those are like also pretty flexible. Searchlight Companion, Twisted Embrace are pretty flexible. Voltage Surge, a little bit more narrow, but not too narrow. Kami of Terrible Secrets. The narrow cards are really things like Iron Apprentice, Simeon Sling, to some extent Inkrai's Infiltrator, Clawing Torment, Rabbit Battery. But I think that those narrow cards are really like, they make up a minority of your deck. So it's not that hard to, you know, while you're in especially black, stay a little bit flexible and then end up kind of moving here if red is open. For me, that's the more likely way that I would get here because red is a little bit less flex flexible. You get fewer picks down before you have to start taking, like, you know, the removal 
Sometimes it goes late. Sometimes it gets taken early. You can take the removal spells and think of yourself as a little bit flexible. But once you get past the removal spells where it's like, okay, well, aside from experimental synthesizers, I'm going to start taking, you know, simian slings and other aggressive creatures. It's like, okay, well, there's nowhere I can go with here. Like I'm, you know, an aggressive red deck. Whereas, yeah, if you start with black and then you see red late uh, or in the middle of the pack, that would be a good way to have a more flexible mindset and pivot into this rather than being here because you're trying to draft an aggressive deck. Does Reckoner Raid giving Hoverbike Menace possibly inform its high win rates? How might that impact the 4-3 vehicle with Crew 1? So I think the Hoverbike is like pretty hard to block anyway. Like, yes, Flying Menace is really unblockable. Like, not literally unblockable, but most of the time your opponent's not going to be able to block it. But Hoverbike is going to connect most of the time anyway, such that I don't think that a huge portion of its success is specifically being drawn with Reckoner Raid. I do think that giving Brute Suit Menace is like a slightly bigger deal. Brute Suit getting Menace is pretty nice. Having multiple Reckoner Raids could reasonably make you prioritize Brute Suit a little bit more highly. What are the recommended finisher cards to pick up in Red Black? At the top of your curve should be Iron Hoof Boar, and that's kind of like the only thing that you want to play that's more than four mana that isn't a rare or mythic. And then you want to play very, very few like cards that cost four. Twist Embrace, Comedy of Terrible Secrets, Mercatai Ambusher are the or Mukatai Ambusher are the like good four mana commons. It's okay to play like the five five ninja. It's not great, but it's fine. That's another like finisher type card, I guess. Honestly, though, like what are the recommended finisher cards to pick up in red black? My real answer is Clawing Torment. Like your starters are like your cheap creatures that apply pressure to your opponent. And then the finisher is just clawing torment to be like, okay, you can't block push damage. You can't stabilize because your creature is going to continue doing damage to you. I'm not trying to block it anymore. Like this is going to burn you out and let me keep attacking, which is to say that you shouldn't be thinking of finisher as like expensive card. You should be thinking of finisher as thing that's going to let you close out a game. And the way that red-black closes out a game is by stopping the opponent from blocking your little creatures with their big creatures. So, like, your removal spells are really more like finishers. And then Clawing Torment is the most that way because it's also doing extra damage. <laughs> Related to my answer there, what are my thoughts on Clawing Torment in red-black? I think that it's quite good um, in most red-black decks. I think it's really good if you're aggressive. I think red-black is usually aggressive. I think that it's like often better than one mana kill a creature. The damage that it's pushing matters a lot. There are certainly, you know, it it is really bad if you're behind. It's really bad if you're not actively ahead. It's really bad if your opponent has a ninja. Clawing Torment can definitely backfire. It's dangerous to play too many of them. It's dangerous to play it if you have too much removal. But it's really, really good if you have, you know, like a lot of Reckoner Raids and other aggressive cards. Thoughts on Reinforced Ronin as a way to get damage through earlier, or would it be better to get another one drop and having it stick on the board? It might be better to get another one drop, but it is not bad to have Reinforced Ronin. Reinforced Ronin is a playable card, especially if you have like good synergies with it. I've found that like a lot of the games that I've played where my opponent has Reinforced Ronin in their opening hand, I just like take six damage early. They are a little bit like, I start low, they start a little bit behind where they should start as an aggressive deck. I think it like works out fine for them, but not amazing. I think that the stats on Reinforced Ronin are 
fine, but not amazing. Obviously, it's better if you have synergies with it. It's great with Anvil. But I mean, even something like Tawashi Song Shaper is like a not irrelevant synergy. Do I think that across the board, aggressive decks want removal more than mid-range control decks in the format? Or does it depend more on the archetype? It depends more on the removal spell to some extent. It, it depends on a lot of things. It depends on the nature of the control deck, the nature of the aggressive deck, and the nature of the removal spell. To make it as simple as possible, I think the answer is yes, this deck is particularly under removal due to its ability to like function as a haste creature, the way that I was talking about to push damage. But sorcery speed removal is less bad for aggressive decks. Aggressive decks are hurt less by their removal spell being a sorcery instead of an instant, because you're more likely to want to play it on your turn to kill a blocker. Whereas with the instant, uh, if you're the defender, you can like wait until they try to attack and use it to blow out a combat trick or something like that after you try to block. Or you can just hold up mana defensively your opponent plays a creature, you kill it, you untap, play a threat. So that's a spot where, like, yeah, I don't know. It is true that sorcery speed removal is a little bit better for aggro decks. Not better than an instant would be, but less worse. And narrow removal, it just depends. Like, obviously, Clawing Torment is a narrow removal spell that's much better for aggressive decks. It's good in aggressive decks and be actively bad in control decks. But a lot of shock type effects are a lot better in control decks than aggressive decks because those removal spells are primarily used to extend the game by killing a small creature so that you don't take damage early and you have time to play bigger stuff. Basically, cheap removal is generally better in control decks. Expensive removal is relatively better in aggressive decks because the aggressive deck is more likely to be ahead on board in a way that lets it leverage killing an expensive creature to put, keep pushing damage. But it's a little bit dangerous to fully internalize that because the aggressive deck wants a low curve and doesn't want clunky removal. It's complicated, and uh, also the margins are small on how good removal spells are in the different decks. Hopefully something in there is useful. Next question is, what kinds of cards would push you into red-black over a different black deck? The obvious answer is seeing good red cards. The answer to the implied question about which black cards are better with red cards. There's not really a lot of that. I suppose, like, Kami of Terrible Secrets is a little bit in that red is a good way to get artifacts, which are generally the things that are hard to get for Kami of Terrible Secrets. Clawing Torment, obviously, I've talked a lot about as a card that would like to be red because red is aggressive um, in a way that most of the other black archetypes aren't reliably. But I, I think it's less, oh, these black cards put me into red-black and more, I was black and then I saw good red cards and they put me here. And I, I think, as I mentioned, that's very much the way the story is usually going to be, at least for me, based on priorities that I have early in a draft, is I'm going to start black and go red rather than starting red and going black. Next up, is there any splash ability at all in red-black, and what cards are strong enough to even consider it? It is always hypothetically possible to splash in this format because there are common dual lands, and you can get enough of them to make your mana work. The cost to playing common dual lands in red-black is high because they are tap lands, so you would still prefer to avoid it, 
but I imagine that there are cards that are strong enough to consider splashing. Cards that I would think about include uh, Michikora's Reign of Truth, or Michiko's, whatever, the two-mana white saga that pumps a creature for artifacts and enchantments. Also, the blue four-mana rare saga that bounces something, draws a card, and becomes a 3-3 flyer. And any of the like truly busted bombs that have a single pip, so maybe even like Jugan Saga, those are the cards that I would consider. I would not take any of them over a strong red or black card, and I don't know if I would take them at all if I didn't just like already have have like a haven that I picked up when I didn't know that I was going to be red black or something. You should be splashing very rarely in red black. Thoughts on Shattered States era? Steel stack sack is pretty expensive here, but its stats are less bad in red black than across the board. Less bad in red black, but I believe still not good. And I think that there are not a lot of ways to sacrifice things that you steal unless the things that you steal are artifacts. And those that exist are pretty expensive. I think that you might be able to use it just as like, I'm playing an aggressive deck and I could use a threat as a finisher. I intend to mostly avoid it. And I think the five mana red Kami is like a better like five mana finisher type card in this archetype than that is, and I would try to avoid both of them. Would I splash a third shrine into an otherwise two-color deck? Definitely not a, like if you're saying I have a red and black deck that has a red shrine and a black shrine, would I splash a white shrine in that deck? I don't think so. And white is the one that's most likely. Like there's no way I would splash a green or blue shrine. I am unlikely to splash the white shrine. I'm more likely to just cut the red and black shrines. Toad Rider is one of the highest cards in the archetype. When playing that card, is it right to use duels solely to use its unblockable ability? You could throw one in there. I don't think it's a priority, but it probably would be like worth playing one if you have a Toad Rider, I guess. I'm not totally sure about that. Uh, I don't think it's going to matter a ton either way, whether you do or not. Should you consider not playing the red-black duel in a red-black deck? I do think that you should consider it. I suspect that I would usually play the first one, though it does depend on how many one drops I have. Uh, someone, possibly you, mentioned that it has a negative four improvement when drawn, which is a little bit misleading because of the fact that uh, red black cards in general are going to have a negative improvement when drawn because red black is trying to play short games and it's more likely to see cards in longer games. Bloodfell Caves isn't going to like actively make it win more. And so I think that the fact that it's losing long games is going to make it like expect to be negative regardless of how good it is. I am likely to not value it highly as a pick, but I think it's still right to play one most of the time. Uh, unless you have a lot of artifacts, like colorless artifacts, such that your colored mana requirements are really, really soft. All right, I'm going to wrap it up there. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Next week, I will probably be opening up the poll for patrons to select my next topic. I think I've drafted the set enough at this point that I can um, trust myself to work with whatever the listeners want to learn about. So we're going to transition into that phase of uh, the podcast. So I'll be back next week with a topic of the listener's choice. 
Thanks, and goodbye, fam.